friends and enemies, welcome to the Old Movie Lady podcast. I am your host, the titular Old Movie Lady, but you can also call me Marg. This is the 18th episode of my series, The Wampus Frolic. So far, I've covered the Western Association of Motion Picture Advertisers Baby Stars lists from 1922 to 1927. In 1927, something, well, pretty big happened in Hollywood that must be touched upon in more detail before I throw myself headfirst into 1928. On October 6, 1927, The Jazz Singer, the first ever feature-length film with talking, had its premiere. If you've ever seen Singing in the Rain or have a passing interest in Hollywood history, of course you know that this film spelled the immediate death of silent movies. The world of entertainment changed in the very blink of an eye. No one could have seen this coming, and no one did. Sound came out of nowhere and shook Hollywood to its very core. But that's not exactly true. Which brings me to today's two-reeler, a look at the beginnings of sound. Pardon the phrase, but listen up. Metaphorically speaking, sound did not arrive in town all at once like an express train. It came gradually, in little crates, over a period of more than ten years. Some shipments came unsolicited, many came on approval, and some left the factory but never arrived at their destination. In other words, the concept of synchronizing music, noises, effects, and speech did not take producers by surprise in the late 1920s. Well, there, film scholar Donald Crafton, writing in his book The Talkies, summed up everything that you need to know from this episode, so I guess you can stop there. Okay, please don't stop there. <laughs> but I will flag right now that I used The Talkies quite extensively, among other sources, and it is a great resource, especially for the technical side of things, that I'm going to largely ignore. I don't want to get into the entire history of the technology of film or sound on film because it would turn this two-reeler into a dense academic study. But it's important for you to know that people have been experimenting with the concept of sound film for pretty much as long as there have been moving pictures. It wasn't particularly successful or anything, but the kernel of the idea was there since at least the mid-1890s, when William Dixon, who worked for Thomas Edison, created the Dixon Experimental Sound Film. It was 17 seconds long, and basically a film of William making a musical recording which could then be played in conjunction with the film. So, not exactly what I would call the introduction of sound, but that's basically my thesis here. Nothing happens in a vacuum, so there is no singular beginning point to the transition. Over the next few decades, many clever darlings in the creative and technological fields worked on variations on the sound concept. Some were continuations on other people's work, some were brand new concepts, some sucked but weren't total failures, 
though most were total failures. Things really heated up post-First World War, as that had brought with it major advances in radio, communication technology, and other electrical innovations. Still, despite these boosts in technology, there were a crap ton of issues that the innovators ran into. Some were experimenting, not very successfully, with some kind of sound recording directly onto film that could be captured by the movie camera and thus played congruently with the same machine projecting the images. Most, though, were attempting to record the audio on a phonograph disc to be synced with the running film reel. The margin of error was razor thin and things would get out of sync almost immediately. Other issues experimenters ran into were with volume, sound quality, and believability. Sound could easily become distorted to the point where it was just an audible mess. Bit by bit, however, those clever darlings were creating something that just might work. All the while, though, the ones making the greatest advancements in the world of sound film were not commercial filmmakers, but engineers, one of whom was Orlando Kellum, who had been working on a talking pictures idea since at least 1916. Along with his colleague, Lieutenant Brian Batty, Orlando eventually invented a system called phonokinema. Modern sources call it photokinema with a T and not an N, but in the trade papers of the early 1920s, it was phono, so that's what I'm going to go with. On May 2nd, 1921, audiences entered into the Town Hall Theater in New York City to see D.W. Griffith's latest film, Dream Street. While it had opened a few weeks before elsewhere, this particular showing was special. It was introduced by a short sequence of film, wherein D.W. himself stepped out from behind a curtain and spoke, out loud, to the audience. They thought it was neat. Although those who spoke from the screen last night could be heard clearly, it cannot be said that their voices had a purely natural quality. Also, the scraping of the needle on the record could be heard by those in the house, reported the New York Times the next day. The synchronization of voices and pictures, however, seemed perfect, and the audiences enjoyed the novelty of this. It was the first use of the Kellum Batty process, aka photokinema, used to introduce a feature film. A few weeks later, two more sequences were added a singing scene, and some crowd noise, which were more integrated into the actual film. But save for a couple of showings at a Brooklyn theater, no other movie house was able to show the sound bits of the picture, because no other movie house had the technology. And well, as the paper put it, the audiences enjoyed the novelty, they weren't so blown away by the experience that they were taking to the streets of New York and demanding more sound pictures. Especially since not that many people even could have gone to see this, the experience was seen as a curio. That said, Hollywood was curious too. The Pitcher Speaks 
ran a headline in the June 24, 1922 issue of the Camera Trade Paper. Columnist Ted Taylor recounted how at the most recent Actors' Equity Association meeting, the wonders of phonokinema were demonstrated. Though it could only record about four minutes at a time, and took three minutes to change reels and records, so it simply wasn't ready for practical presentation of entire plays, as Cameron put it, Ted was sure that it was going to have a big dramatic impact on the world. Here are some things that the phonokinema can and will do. It will elect the next president. It will thrust the film industry into politics. It will give the exhibitor a telling weapon against vaudeville. It can eliminate the spoken title in photodramas and present dramatic speech with startling effect. It can eliminate personal appearance trips of stars. Orchestral and prologue programs can be filmed and sold to exhibitors. Of course, though it wasn't specifically phonokinema that did all that, there actually is something eerily prophetic about how Ted Taylor saw its potential, particularly in politics, no? He was less prophetic as he wrapped up his article, saying, A wonderful achievement and undoubtedly of great value, yet the phonokinema will never supersede photodrama as now projected in silence. Silence is one of the screen's charms. Phonofilm, invented by the daddy of radio, Lee DeForest, around 1922, was another promising system. I say invented, he evidently got more than a bit of his idea from some European inventors and collaborated with an engineer named Theodore Case, and I say collaborated, but I get the impression that Theo was doing most of the work, and Radio Daddy Lee was taking most of the credit. Anyway, instead of recording the sound on discs, it recorded directly onto film. And it sounded pretty terrible. But at least it didn't have as bad a synchronization issue. Multiple reels were still difficult to achieve, but a few two-reelers were produced in 1923. None of these would have been shown widely, however, as they were independently produced by DeForest himself and meant for demonstration purposes more than anything else. The Hollywood studios were largely disinterested in either phonokinema or phonofilm, though as a publicity stunt, Paramount did use phonofilm as a partial soundtrack for two of its film premieres in 1923, The Covered Wagon and Belladonna. To put yourself in the shoes of the audiences at these premieres, the general movie-going experience at the time involved hearing music by way of a small orchestra or perhaps an organ player, depending on the size and budget of the particular movie house you were at. Silent movies weren't silent experiences. So at these premieres, audiences had the soundtrack of the film. Maybe some sound effects. These films had no dialogue, just the music pumped out along with the film itself. It would have been synced and a novelty for sure, but it almost certainly would have sounded worse than just having the live music. 
There are superficial critics who will hear and see the phono film in its present state of development that may be unkind enough to point out some of its deficiencies and call them defects, wrote Motion Picture Magazine in its September 1923 issue, apparently directly at this superficial critic. They admit that it's a scratchy sound and barely audible at the back of the theater, but are sure of its overall potential, given time, and money. Technological developments are heavily dependent on investment, and the moving picture business is a business first and foremost. As a general rule, the studios were already making money without relying on too many expensive gimmicks using the format they were used to. So in the simplest terms, what was in it for them to fund further advances in sound? That said, a couple of smaller studios were interested to see where they might be able to use one of these new products. Warner Brothers was a leader here, not because they necessarily thought that the future was in feature-length sound films, but because they wanted to improve their not-very-good radio department, and because they weren't afraid of gimmicks. The Warner family started in the film business really by starting in the gimmick business. They started projecting films way back in 1903 as novelty experiences, not too dissimilar to carnival rides. Anyway, Sam Warner is credited with taking charge, and he was shopping around a little bit. Phonofilm was considered, but the winner was from Western Electric. They had been developing sound film technology for a while, eventually landing on a sound-on-disc system that was functional by 1924. While several of the bigger studios, including Famous Players and Verse National, had already passed on the technology, Sam Warner was impressed and made a deal. The new system was called Vitaphone. I get all confused while trying to explain business deals, but essentially Vitaphone operated as a Warner's subsidiary, allowing them to exclusively use and fund the system purchased from Western Electric. The other Warners weren't as sold as Sam was, but younger brother Jack did support the production of the studio's first use of Vitaphone, 1926's Don Juan. Just as with the premiere performances a few years before of Belladonna and the Covered Wagon using phonofilm, Don Juan, which starred John Barrymore and Wampus Baby star of 1926, Mary Astor, was not a talkie, but instead had its soundtrack provided by Vitaphone. Thus, aside from the novelty of delivery, the movie-going experience wasn't so different than usual. Except, of course, if you were used to seeing movies in your local small-town theater, which of course many were. It seems beyond human conception that the smallest theater in the smallest hamlet of this country can exhibit Don Juan with an orchestral accompaniment of 107 men of the New York Philharmonic Orchestra. This is what the Vitaphone has done wrote the Film Daily in their August 8, 1926 issue. Vitaphone could replace local musicians. And it was being used to union bust, which is pretty gross. But my point is, is that suddenly there was the potential for a more unified experience in movie houses. 
Warner Brothers movie has is anyway. Though Don Juan was popular, it had been very expensive to make, and it was very expensive to outfit those theaters with the right equipment. So Warner's, not sound champion Sam, but the other three, nearly gave up the entire venture as a pointless exercise. But let's put a quick pin in that. Remember that I mentioned a fellow named Theodore Case who had been working his ass off on phonofilm while Radio Daddy Lee Forrest was taking all the credit? The two men had a bitter falling out in 1925 over Lee's attitude, and Theo, quite a prolific inventor, took his patents and his assistant, Earl I. Sponable, and started what eventually came to be called Movie Tone. The improved sound-on-film system was then purchased by Fox Studios in 1926, just months after Warner's made their Vitaphone deal. Fox also hired Earl to run the sound department. From the book The Talkies, William Fox purchased the Case sound-on-film device in 1926, but it seemed he had no preconception of what to do with it. The studio informally subsidized some tests during the summer, shot in Fox Films' New York office. One of these was immortal footage of Gus Weiser singing, Ma, he's making eyes at me, punctuated by loud quacks from the trained duck under his arm. Well, personally, I can think of no better test. For basically the rest of 1926, Fox, specifically William Fox, the studio head, did a bunch of wheeling and dealing that I can't really explain coherently, but which resulted in obtaining a shitload of patents and technologies, predominantly in a quest to solve the amplification issue, making sure that people even in the back of the theater would be able to hear the show. Fox made an alliance between Western Electric's competitors, General Electric, Westinghouse, AT&T, and RCA, and then managed to finagle a sublicing agreement with Western Electric and Vitaphone, even though Warner's was supposed to have dibs. Anyway, by January 1927, Fox Studios, using Vitaphone's way of solving the amplification problem, was ready to start producing its own sound pictures. Again, not talkies, but films with a synchronized score. While the initial focus was on shorts and then re-releasing earlier hits but with soundtracks, by September, Fox was ready to release its first feature-length film with a movie tone score. Sunrise, A Song of Two Humans, starring George O'Brien, and your girl Janet Gaynor, Wampus Baby Star of 1926. The film was shown, in theaters equipped with the right hardware, alongside the first-ever Fox Movie Tone newsreel. A talking one. A whole speech, no less. Oh, wow. To have been there to hear the first-ever... Oh, wait a second. No. It was Mussolini. I'm good. I'm good. Never mind. So, yeah. The first talking newsreel, released in September 1927, was highlighting a fascist dictator. Let's check in with Warner Brothers. They probably weren't about to make history with anything we'd find repugnant today, right? Right? On October 7th, 1926, Warner Brothers' second Vitaphone soundtracked film, The Better Ole, starring Sid Chaplin, 
had its premiere in New York City. Accompanying the feature were seven Vitaphone shorts. As Motion Picture News reported just a couple of weeks later, the shorts were a mixed bag of vaudeville musical comedy skits and more serious singers, with, fittingly, a mixed bag of results. The serious singers gave the impression of unreality, of a picture with a voice not remotely connected to the figure on the screen, but rather far removed from the latter. Whereas the more raucous comedic performers sounded much better and more natural on the recordings. The review took special notice of the Howard Brothers short Between the Acts at the Opera because their songs were incidental to their quite amusing patter in the skit, and similarly, George Jessel's short A Theatrical Booking Office was commended for his amusing blend of monologue and song. I mention these to point out that while thus far and into the next year both Vitaphone and Movietone were being used to provide synchronized music and sound effects, quite literal talkies in the form of these shorts not only existed, but were being seen and heard by more and more people, and those people liked it. Another very notable short in that Vitaphone lineup released in October 1926 was called and I'm so sorry, a plantation act. It starred blackface performer Al Jolson singing three songs over ten minutes. Al was an extremely famous vaudevillian, Broadway performer, and recording artist whose so-called art form was one designed to mock and denigrate black people and perpetuate harmful racist stereotypes. People loved his bullshit and had for a few decades by that point. Al was on the Warner Brothers' radar in the context of talkies as early as the fall of 1926. But before we can get to the film that forever linked him to the history of sound, it's worth discussing the general state of affairs at Warner's. I mentioned before that Don Juan was popular, and it was, especially in the 50 or so theaters that Warners had set up with all the correct Vitaphone equipment. They had big expansion plans promising to convert hundreds more theaters. But The Better Ole, despite its exciting lineup of companion shorts, had done pretty poorly. And the conversions were taking way longer than expected. So two big problems faced Warners during the early part of 1927. One, they needed more theaters to be able to play the Vitaphone features in order to pay for more Vitaphone features. And they really needed some more huge hits and fast. There were some more wheeling and dealing, this time more copacetically between Fox and Warners, that allowed for cross-presentation of each other's films, and Warners ended up with more revenue from rental fees, but oh my god, I am bored even talking about this part. I'm the old movie lady, not a business lady. Just know that this helped, but did not immediately solve problem number one. As far as problem number two goes, Sam Warner, the one Warner brother who really, really believed in sound, had a plan. The Jazz Singer was a Broadway hit, and it seemed like a perfect vehicle for Vitaphone. 
It told the story, inspired by one Al Jolson, of the son of Russian Jewish immigrants who defies the expectations of his family to don blackface and become a successful entertainer. Warners got the rights to the play and signed the lead of the Broadway production, George Jessel. Some messy contract problems arose almost immediately, and by spring 1927, George was out and Al was in. Over the next few months, filming commenced. Now, there is a myth that Al shocked everyone, including those on the set, when he decided to turn the production into a talking one. Well, it is true that the parts of the film that ended up including spoken words were not scripted, they were planned. The July 8, 1927 issue of Motion Picture News said of the jazz singer, they are planning to use dialogue in certain scenes of this production. Al didn't film the complex Vitaphone scenes until August. It's possible that the rest of the cast and crew didn't specifically know what he was going to say, but they knew he was going to say something. The entire filming process was intense, and Sam Warner was pushing himself to see that everything to do with the film was perfect. Hidden microphones, soundproofed camera boxes, those produced a very loud whirring noise it had to be dealt with. Desperate attempts to keep the noise of passing traffic muffled. And the nature of Vitaphone itself, sound on disc, caused issues. You see, while film strips, though expensive, can be edited, the discs could not be. A single audio mistake meant throwing out the disc and the film that went with it. There was no cutting around the problem. It was stressful and costly, and it basically killed Sam Warner. That's an oversimplification, but you know, not totally inaccurate either. Poor Sam, who had just married Lena Basquette, Wampus Star of 1928, two years before and was a new father, was working non-stop on the jazz singer despite his rapidly declining health. He started getting headaches and nosebleeds and began losing his ability to walk straight, but he just kept on working as a very hands-on producer. In September, he was hospitalized, and it was discovered that he had several abscessed teeth and a sinus infection which had spread into his brain. Had he taken a break and gone to the doctor earlier, he likely could have been saved. Instead, he fell into a coma and at just 40 years old, died on October 5th, 1927, the day before the premiere of The Jazz Singer. So he wasn't there to sit in the theater and hear, along with the audience, the very first words spoken in a feature-length film. Wait a minute, wait a minute, you ain't heard nothing yet. I'll give it to Al. Those are some weirdly impactful words to be the first heard in a feature film. 
the jazz singer, which, hey, if you've seen the Simpsons episode, like Father Like Clown, then you've seen enough, was, as Pitcher Play put it, a second-rate pitcher. But it was an exciting step forward in the film-going experience. And the butts in seats were thrilled. Did the audience flood out of the theater on opening night and demand all talkies all the time? No. For one thing, the jazz singer wasn't an all-talkie either. But what audiences did do was tell their friends. And they told their friends. And the film became the hit that Warners needed. Was the era of silent films done in a blink? Nope. It even took several months before another partial talkie was released, and nearly a year before Fox, who was really the closest early adopter, released its own part talkie. But a change was in the air. Meanwhile, the, the larger studios were basically just observing all of this, cautiously. Collecting some resources, making some deals but not diving headfirst into sound productions just yet. But that's a story for another day, about another year. Thanks for listening to this two-reeler episode of the Old Movie Lady podcast. If you liked it, leave me a rating or review on your platform of choice. Share on your socials painstakingly record your feelings onto a disc that cannot be edited. Whatever you like, every little bit helps. I've been your host, Marg, the old movie lady, an unholy mess of a girl. Wait a minute, I tell you, you ain't heard nothing. You want to hear good, 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 good? All right.